0: Gospel with Dr. Halista Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Shabbat Shalom. If you're going to be a Gentile... This is the type of Gentile you want to be. It says, when a stranger, and the Hebrew word there is ger, sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger, the ger, who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers, gerim, in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Right. So you can see when he uses the word ger, The implication here is this is the person moving into the community. He now is identifying with that community. And it's so important that he be welcomed into that community that some real estate is taken right here in Vayikra in Leviticus. It says, don't do him wrong. You're going to have to treat him. You have to love him as you love yourself. He's one of you. Right. Even though he was not among you by birth, he has chosen to come and dwell among you to join himself to the covenant. And just in case we weren't really clear about how we were supposed to treat this kind of gentile, he says, I am the Lord your god. It is basically because I said so. You might think that they're unclean, they're unfit, and at this point I just I have to push the most wonderful Becky book. Becky book B E K Y if you want to look it up, written by Dr. Robin Gould, and it's called Peter's Vision beacon or bacon. It's worth looking that up. Peter's vision, beacon or bacon? Because so many times Peter's vision is used to excuse eating unclean things. And so the, the entire vision is usually misinterpreted by Gentiles <laughs> uh, to people who don't understand this background and the distinctions here. At any rate, the gear this is someone traveling in. To covenant with Adonai. It's just a matter of time till he becomes a full-fledged member. In modern times, there would be a formal conversion ceremony. And they might still be referred to as a ger to distinguish them as somebody who came into the covenant out of love and choice, not just because they were born and circumcised on the eighth day. So in this case, being a gentile, it's it's a good thing. It's a positive thing. Now there's another word for Gentile, and this is goy. And again, this is someone who's not an Israelite by birth. And sometimes it can be a negative thing. And sometimes it just means it's somebody who is not an Israelite by birth. It's somebody from the nations. You have to read the context to know this is how you're going to be able to, if you're not reading it in Hebrew, it becomes especially important. Read the context and then you'll know whether this is, um, a goy that is just somebody who's from the nation, who lives among the nations in a general sense, who's not an Israelite by birth, or if this is somebody who's being associated with idolatry, uh, disobedience to the word, pagan customs, and that sort of thing. Now, there's a third class, which is thought to be the least desirable kind of non-Israelite or Gentile. And this is a nakri, nakri. Uh, Ruth called herself, now they didn't call her this, uh, I, unless I missed something in the text. There was no Jew who ever called Ruth a Nakri. But when she introduces herself to Boaz, she calls herself a Nakriya, Nakriya. And she's saying, I'm not just a stranger. I'm not just the boy. I'm a Nakriya. I'm the least desirable person. So you can see the utter humility of Ruth. She's not even so arrogant that she would describe herself as a Gare, who who deserves to be treated with love and with fairness and equality. No, she just lowers herself to the lowest level and says, I don't deserve a thing from you, Mr. Boaz. And of course, we know that uh, she was not a Nakria at all. In Ruth 2.10, that's how she says uh, this is how she introduces herself. But by the end of the story, we know that she's way more than just a girl, just a, a stranger deserving of love and good treatment, that she's actually a bride in Israel. She is a bride of Judah. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to see how she abases herself and then she's lifted up. So here's what we have in the text uh, Leviticus 19 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out, right? So we we had some previous vomiting verses <laughs> last week. We had the vomiting verses in, uh, I believe, acharemot Well, now here comes another vomit verse. And this is of interest to us, because when we get to the seven assemblies of Revelation, it's going to be the assembly of Laodicea, who's warned, because you were lukewarm, if you won't repent, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. So if we want to understand why the residents of Laodicea would be vomited out of the Holy One's mouth, then we come right back here to our vomit verses. So here's another vomit verse. How do you get spit out? Fail to keep the statutes and the rules and do them? Because he says, if he doesn't vomit you out, the land itself will you just can't live there. It's like the Garden of Eden. You cannot live in the Garden of Eden in sin and rebellion. He says, you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I'm driving out before you. The nation, right? These are going to be like, you know, the Goyim, the nations. They're they're not Israelite. And in this case, we can read the context and we can tell what kind of Gentile it's referring to. These are going to be those who do all of the abominable customs that he's listed before these verses and that he lists after these verses, all types of sexual immorality, stealing, robbery, you name it, everything on the list they're doing. So in this case, this is a kind of a Gentile that he says is going to be driven out. But he says, if you do the same things they did, you're not going to get better treatment I'm going to drive you out too. They did all of the things. I detested them. You went in. You knew very clearly that these were detestable things. You kept doing them. So what's going to happen? I'm going to vomit you out. The land itself will vomit you out. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the people's. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. All right, if you ever wondered why it's important to eat kosher, it's telling you explicitly within the text right here. It's not a matter of good, good, healthy eating habits because you can eat kosher and still eat very unhealthy. <laughs> it's, uh, you can do all sorts of bad things to your body and still be eating kosher because it's, it's not so much a health principle. It's a spiritual principle. It has to do with who you belong to. How he is preparing you to live in a land flowing with milk and honey so that it will not vomit you out like the Laodiceans in Revelation. He wants you to learn the statutes and the rules. And he says, for this specific rule, which has to do with separating clean beasts from unclean beasts and unclean birds from unclean birds, so that you won't eat an unclean bird or beast, he says, I want you to do this because. I'm separating you from the peoples. And in case we didn't get it the first time, he says it again. I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. This is how you're going to know an Israelite from every other peoples. This is how, by what you put in your mouth, it will distinguish you. Now, what if you kept the physical principle, but it had no spiritual meaning to you at all? Well, you're in trouble you're in big, bad trouble. Because he doesn't give you these things in order to uh, manufacture your own righteousness. He's giving you these things because these are his righteousness, and he wants you to walk in them to show that you belong to him. If you manufactured your own righteousness out of eating kosher, you're not showing that you belong to him, you're showing that you belong to you. It's a fine line, but we can see throughout the ages that Religious people have gotten it all wrong. They somehow thought they could build their own righteousness by keeping the rules. And instead, he's just saying, you're walking in my righteousness, and this is how you're going to be able to maintain yourself in this clean state. See, he has cleansed us, and we want to maintain that, right? We, It's kind of like driving your car through the car wash, and why would you head straight for the first mud hole you could find? unless you were eight years old, right? So he says, this is how you're going to show people that you're holy to me. And again, if you didn't get the title of that book, it's Peter's Vision, Beacon or Bacon? Very small, very tiny book, but it's worth five times what you'll pay for it. It's it's inexpensive, but it's worth many more times what you'll pay for it, because it'll clarify this passage right here in the context of Peter's vision. So My point in reading these these two passages is to show you that there are those who are Gentiles and they will have their times. But when it's Yeshua's time, their time is up. Up for what? Pretty much time is up for world domination. Instead, the true ruler of the earth will be restored as at the creation. He will once again rule from Jerusalem. That's the difference. This is why it's important. So if we know what the times of the Gentiles are, these are going to be the times of the earth's history under which the beast kingdoms thrived and expanded their influence. And they're they're still expanding their influence to this day. Right. So let's review a couple of things here, I think, from last week that'll just kind of bring it into our consciousness as we move forward. But remember, there's there's the Gentile, the stranger to the covenant who has no interest in it. But there's also a classification of a gear who tends to be that one who's moving in to covenant. And so they're, they're kind of in a, a tricky place because they don't have a foot firmly established in idolatry, but they maybe have nevertheless not firmly established their feet within the covenant. And so by the time we read the message to Leodikia, which is the seventh assembly. The seventh assembly is going to represent the feast of Sukkot and Shabbat. So in a sense, they've had six days or they've had six feasts to make up their minds. You know, do you want to be classified as one from the nations or do you want to be classified as an Israelite? It's up to you. But no longer can you stand with a foot in two camps still trying to decide. Now, if you've already decided, I'm going into the covenant and I'm, you know, on, on route, you know, I, I'm I'm getting there as fast as I can because we know that especially as an adult, if you come into the faith, it's going to take some time. You have to read things and understand things. You have to accept that that message of Yeshua and salvation. And it's part of a process right? But if you have made that decision, then you're no longer lukewarm. You're no longer jumping back and forth between the idolatrous, rebellious branch and the covenant branch of obedience, right? And so this is kind of one of the things that kosher eating accomplishes. Kosher eating can be one of those signs that says, I'm all in. I want you, Father, to distinguish me from the nations, As one who chooses to be a stranger to the covenant, instead, I choose to no longer be a stranger to the covenant. I'm no longer a sojourner. I'm a resident now. You know, (laughs) I've signed up to vote or whatever. I'm here. I'm engaging in this covenant relationship with you. And so as the the time grows short, it will become more and more important for those who might have been lukewarm about where they stand. Uh, to make up their minds, because you're either in or you're out. Your lukewarmness is only in your head, really. You're in or you're out, and if you're out, you're going to be vomited out. This is what happens when the grapes of wrath begin at Sukkot. And again, last week we looked at the sharp sickle and the angel of altar fire. Right there's this sick bed that Thyatira was warned they would be thrown onto, and if you're thrown onto that sick bed because you were lukewarm, if you're still lukewarm at Sukkot, you've been through Shavuot, the time of the covenant, that was your time to say, I will do and I will hear. I will no longer be a stranger to this covenant. I'm moving with Israel. This is my identity. This is my citizenship. Jerusalem is my capital. But if you, between that time, and he says, and I'll throw you on a sick bed. So if between Shavuot, when you should have accepted the covenant, and Sukkot, which is symbolized by Leah Dekia, you're still on your sickbed and you can't make up your mind. Is like you become vomit. In time, vomit. Because when the times of the Gentiles are concluded, there's going to be some really serious vomiting going on. It's not really appetizing after you just had lunch. All right. So let's just review here. Revelation 14, 17. And Revelation 14, that chapter, if you want to reread it, this is kind of been a working text that we're using to show how we begin walking through a, a particular door at Pesach as it pertains to the return of the Son of Man. And it says, another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, and we related this to Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, there's one angel who's there to rescue Lot and his family, and then there's another angel who's there to sit Sodom and Gomorrah and the Well, it turned out to be four cities, but originally the five cities on fire, uh, Sodom and its satellite cities. He comes out from the altar. He called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle saying, put in your sharp sickle, gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. So you can see the, the, the symbol of the sickle makes you think first fruits of the barley, Passover, first fruits of the wheat, Shavuot. But then you start harvesting grapes after Shavuot, depending on climate location and that sort of thing, the grapes will begin to come in all the way up until Sukkot. So they're using a harvesting sickle in the place of a pruning knife. Grapes are harvested with a pruning knife, not a sickle. They they have two completely different functions. And so you can see that this is going to be messy the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. See, he's not going through the clusters one by one with a pruning knife and saying in or out. I can't really tell. Well, they kind of look like, you know, they're in the covenant, but there's, you know, look at all these dirty movies they're watching and look at the pornography on their laptop. And yeah, they go to, you know, you know, they go to the feast, but they're not going to do that. If there's that lukewarmness, by the time Sukkot occurs, when the grapes of wrath occur, he'll just take that sharp sickle of the grain harvest and just, whoosh, he'll take it all off. So there's no degrees of lukewarm. It's in or out. And it says the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 1600 stadia. So we're going to relate this particular prophecy. Blood up to the horse's bridles with another event in history in a place called Betar, which is in the footsteps prophecy of the Song of Songs, where he talks about, Turn, my beloved, like a young gazelle or a stag on the mountains of Betar. The only other time in history that I'm aware of that it is recorded that blood came up to the horse's bridles is going to be the last stand of the Jews against Rome, the Iron Kingdom. The monster kingdom, the conglomerate of the lion, the bear, and the leopard, their last stand, their last hope of self-governance occurred on the mountains of Betar, about 135 AD. And the the only surviving witness says that the blood came up to the Roman horses' noses. Right? So John wrote this before that occurred. His prophecy is before that occurred. So we're gonna look at what Yeshua said concerning the times of the Gentiles and see if we can't maybe see two distinct time periods that Yeshua might be talking about. Because the conclusion of human wheat as Shavuot, this is when it's thought that uh, the elect, the righteous, they're, they're sealed over at Shavuot at Pentecost. At, at the renewal of the covenant, when they say, we will do and we will hear This is when they are set as a seal upon his arm, and he guards them very zealously and jealously at that time. Uh, The fall feasts are more for the lukewarm, for those who had failed to repent at that time and to walk in his ways, uh, who didn't know the difference between clean and unclean. And so eating kosher is just one sign of that, that you choose not to be identified with the nations. Instead, you choose to be identified with Israel. So, and, and this is Obviously, very much on the traditional timetable that at Sukkot, these are when the decrees of the heavenly hosts are handed off to the angels, to the messengers for execution upon the whole world, whether for good or for bad. All right. So the mountains of Beter, again, the the blood up to the horse's bridles that John is talking about, it was fulfilled I'm sure long after John had passed away in 135 AD something very specific blood up to the horses bridles where did this occur in a city called Betar or Betar there's in the in the online classes we go into a little bit more detail about you know how the word is spelled and if you break it apart what it becomes and so forth uh, and some of the prophecies embedded in that but the working text remember That fits within the footsteps of Messiah is Song of Songs 217. So this is a prophecy of King Messiah's return. It says, until the cool of the day, when the shadows flee, turn my beloved and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of Beter. Now that's a little odd because nowhere else in scripture are you going to hear of Beter. It's a a one-off. And so when something's only mentioned one in scripture, we're scratching our heads and saying, let me find out what I can find out about Beter, because it's so important. It's in a prophecy of the footsteps of Messiah. Remember the footsteps of Messiah, the the guide there is how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, announcing peace, right? These are the footsteps of Messiah. Now, you can also call him the tribulation, Hev Mashiach, but it's just two different ways of describing the same period, the same time period. Because to the righteous, this is good news. He's coming on the mountains. To the wicked, not so good news, right? Because the grapes of wrath are coming. The destruction is coming. The, the destruction of the wicked is coming. So where it says here, on the mountains of Beter, it makes us think of the feet of Messiah. Where is the image of the beast going to be destroyed? The feet. Right? Because he wants to stand on the mountains. What did he do on the mountain of Betar? He massacred the Jews of Betar until the blood ran up to the horses' bridles. The Romans absolutely destroyed, massacred women, children didn't matter in a most brutal way. Stacked them up, put them in baskets, you name it. And you know, the amount of blood that that came out of that massacre, it really does it, some things we won't mention on video, but very graphic. But that's our working text. The mountains of Betar are going to have a meaning here. Now, it was a a city of Judah during the the kingdom of Rome, the iron kingdom of Rome. It's also the monster kingdom, because remember, it is a composite. In Daniel's vision, it will have the, the head, like the mouth of a lion speaking the blasphemies. Then it will have the brute strength of the bear of Persia, Medea. And then it will have the, the organization, so to speak, those systems of the leopard, and then the ability to uh, extend its influence fast and far using those systems military, political, medical you name it. Uh, they perfected those systems. And then once the the kingdom of Rome itself was disbanded. It was the systems that continued to live within the nations they had once conquered. Now, you can break betar into two words, and it becomes betar, which means house of the blade. But if you vowel it, sometimes in Hebrew, it's just a matter of do you pronounce it this way or that way? Tomato, tomato, right? If you pronounce it Beitur, it's the house of the turtle dove. Well, remember, as, as you start out in the Song of Songs, the voice of the turtle dove is heard in the land. Why? Because Messiah is returning. So Betar, pretty much no matter which way you slice it in the text, it's giving you signals of Messiah's footsteps. So on Tisha B'Av, depends on your source whether you think it's 133 AD or 135 AD, there had been a three and a half year siege of the city Okay, that's very consistent, again, with our our prophecies of a seven-year tribulation. But that uh, for the elect, it's believed that the time will be shortened to a half a time. And so in this example of Betar, we have an example of when it goes the other way. Because Betar followed a false messiah named Bar Kokhba, they experienced a a three-and-a-half-year siege, and the time for them was shortened too, just not in the way you want it to be. They were killed. They were massacred. Not rescued. So the days were shortened. And maybe it was for the elect's sake, right? Maybe, you know, they followed a false Messiah, but at least they were looking for one. They weren't trying to live in rebellion. They weren't trying to live in disobedience. They were simply deceived, like Eve, and followed after Bar Kochba. So their days were shortened. And so maybe that was even a kindness, uh, knowing the brutality of the Romans. But then there's a massacre on Tisha B'Av. And then the Jews are totally exiled and the land is completely ruled by Rome, destroyed Jerusalem again. And at this point, the Jews lost all chance at self-governance. And we can see at this point in history, any return by the Jews, any return by the nation of Israel, it would be like Jeremiah's prophecy. I think it was Jeremiah. No, Isaiah. Here it is. I'm looking straight at it. Isaiah 60, verse 8. Who are these who fly like a cloud and like the doves to their lattices? Well, you know, one of the, the euphemisms for the retaining wall of the temple, you know, if you've ever been to the hotel or if you've seen pictures of it, just picture in your mind right now, you're standing in front of the, the hotel, the retaining wall of the temple. And think of those big stones, how they're arranged like a lattice, All right, That is One of the interpretations of the lattices that when people return to the temple, when they return to Jerusalem, they are returning to their lattices. So, who are these who fly like a cloud? Well, who's in the cloud? Yeshua, who dwells in the cloud? Yeshua, who's gathered into the cloud? His people. How do they move in the wilderness? In Sukkot of glory or clouds of glory. So, who are these who fly like a cloud to the Temple Mount? That's what Isaiah asks. So this destruction of Betar, it's going to be a trigger at some future time. It's like a telescope with prophecy. Don't ever ask when was a prophecy fulfilled. (laughs) Well, just ask when was it fulfilled last? Because there's a really good chance it's going to be fulfilled again throughout time. It's just like a telescope. You just, yeah, it'll be fulfilled more than once. So Yeshua is going to make a prophecy concerning a time of tribulation that we can, I think, very specifically pin on this destruction of Tisha B'Av in 135 AD after three and a half year siege. But as we read the prophecy, it's going to look like there's two time periods that he might be speaking into. We know that all hope of return as a self-governed people or nation was destroyed at Betar. Any return would have to be miraculous. The iron beast Rome would have to be destroyed before they could return. But Isaiah says there will be a return. Who are these who fly like a cloud and like doves to their lattices? So this this betar idea is going to be a trigger that when the footsteps of Messiah return, we're going to be able to relate it to something in this blood running up to the horse's bridles in the mountains of betar. OK, so let's go back to Luke 21. And this time, let's just try it. I'm not going to convince you it's two separate time periods, but I want you to just try it. So I've divided the verses, Luke 21, 20 through 28, into two separate time periods. Right. So he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And they did. You know, as we're talking about the time of Bar Kokhba, and then being forced back to, you know, places like Masada, Beitar, this is what they had to do. Flee to the mountains, and those who are inside the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of punishment, so that all the things which have been written will be fulfilled, all right? All covenant people, they cannot go in the, the city at this point. The the city being Jerusalem. Woe to those women who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. Wow. And these are these are covenant people. It says they will fall by the edge of the sword, they did, and will be led captive into all the nations, they did. And then it says, we're going to see a transition here. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So Yeshua is saying this this terrible tribulation, Jerusalem's going to be surrounded by armies. Every last Jew is going to have to leave. Jerusalem's going to have to flee. They're going to be put to the sword, just like in the city of Betar. They will kill women, children, children within the womb. It will not matter. They will massacre everyone in the city but one so he can live to go tell what happened and how the blood did run up to the horse's bridles. But Here, he says, there's going to be uh, a trampling underfoot by the Gentiles. The Jews will never regain control of Jerusalem or the Temple Mount, he's saying. This is going to be the end of it at this time when they're led captive into all the nations until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. All right, You can see why the expectation is that if Yeshua was the Messiah, he should have taken care of Rome, the Iron Legs. But there was still one more appendage, so to speak. There was Rome mingled into the clay of the Gentiles. You can see why maybe they made that mistake of thinking Yeshua should have put an end to Rome. And then when Yeshua didn't, you can see that following after Bar But well, this must be the one. Now he's going to defeat the Romans. We'll have our city back. And instead, just the opposite happened. He was not the Messiah. And by sending them into exile. Part of this prophecy would be fulfilled. And then the prophecy of Jerusalem, specifically the Temple Mount, being trampled underfoot by Gentiles until a particular time, that would be fulfilled too, because it would have to be fulfilled after Rome's destruction as a kingdom, but when it had infected and infested the other nations of the earth and mingled with them until it had passed those systems on to them. Now, at this point, see if there might not be a, a time shift in terms of the prophecy. What if Yeshua said, okay, this is a prophecy, it was fulfilled. Now, what if he's saying, okay, now look beyond, stretch your telescope, your prophecy telescope out. Consider this. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars, which John also talks about, and on the earth, distress among the nations, right? You just read that. Up in the first part of the prophecy, when he talks about Jerusalem being surrounded, where it says there will be great distress upon the land. Now look at the shift. If you stretch your telescope, he says on earth, distress among the nations, not among the land of Israel, among the nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. The sea, by the way, often represents people's nations, peoples people fainting from fear and the expectation of the things that are coming upon the world. For as this first part of the prophecy pertains very particularly to Jews in Judea, now he's talking about the nations. Uh, He says, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Why do they have to be shaken? Because it's understood and, and don't have time to elaborate right now, maybe later. The powers of the heavens relate to those principalities that have been set charge over the the kingdoms of the beast and not just the kingdoms of the beast every nation has its own power or principality that is assigned to look after its welfare and the thing to understand about these principalities and powers is that they're very single minded they have one job they don't multitask and you can see this in the resistance you know when when Daniel prays and then there's resistance from the prince of Persia. He is a principality put over Persia. Should Daniel receive this assistance that he's asking for through prayer, then that principality might see it as counter to his mission to maintain Persia. And so there, there had to be an intervention there because he had it has to be demonstrated to him that this is the will of the Holy One who puts you into this power, and therefore you need to let the message through. So in that sense, when we look at how Rome has infested all the nations of the world with its systems, then the powers of he- of the heavens will have to be shaken. Now that the, the lion of Judah is waking up and roaring, then those powers and principalities will have to be brought into subjection to that one single purpose instead of being divided and saying, well, my job is to you know see to the welfare of the united states my job is to see to the welfare of canada my job is to see to the welfare of south africa and so forth i don't know what all the principalities and powers are but it does have to do with the boundaries of the nations those powers are going to have to be shaken up and then they will see the son of man coming in a clap in other words all these powers of the heavens will have to be brought into a unity of purpose with yeshua and that's what they say about the messiah Is that he will be able to coordinate the powers of the angels of the four winds so that instead of being destructive powers, he can turn them into the peace be still? That's why it shook the the disciples up so badly. They understood who he was, that only King Messiah would be able to speak to those four winds and have them come into a, a peaceful working together because typically a wind will prevail, you'll have prevailing winds. One's more powerful than the other, but to calm them all down at the same time so that each of those four winds does the job that it's supposed to do, like the angels of the four winds. He's got the power over them. He can tell them to hold back. He can tell them to get busy. He has the power to coordinate these powers of the heavens. It's also thought that just as these four winds corresponded to the four uh, faces of Israel and their encampments, remember they had 12 tribes, but camped in four directions, that when they were obedient in that encampment, they became a kind of a divine machine. And all the the world creation would function as it was created. When all 12 tribes of Israel camped according to their assignments, when they were obedient, that favor would go from there, from the heavenly uh, temple, down to that Mishkan, and then it would flow out to the four corners of the earth. But it's also thought that those four winds, that that there can be four entities that correspond to the four beast kingdoms, right? So like I said, I don't want to go too far down that road. But they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, you see the difference between the two? (laughs) he doesn't say straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near in the first part of the prophecy. He says, no, it's going to get bad, bad, worse, worse, worse until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. But when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So this great distress that was experienced in Judea in the first part of the prophecy, that same distress, those same forces are going to be moving across the whole world. But he says, when you see it the second time, and remember, Betar is kind of the hinge here. Turn, my beloved, on the mountains of Betar. Turn what? Turn and redeem Israel that has been scattered. From the time of the massacre of Betar, there has been no self-governance among Israel. And now when he turns, even though there will be great perplexity and people fainting from fear and so forth, he says, this is the time to lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near, which is good news. And then Paul talks about it. Romans 11, 25, he says, I don't want you, brothers and sisters, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Not that that's helped, but he at least put the phrase in there, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. You know, people keep asking, you know, why can't the Jews see Jesus? Well, it might be the way he's being portrayed, number one. Um, I'm not sure what the world will do if Yeshua comes back and he has peyot and Akipa and tzitzit, big long beard. I don't know what they'll think about that. What if he actually looks Jewish? Uh, But at any rate... You know, we're not supposed to be wise in our own estimation that this is all part of a plan that for the time of the the Gentiles to run its course. um, This hardening had to happen. And again, maybe the world would have had a really hard time accepting a Jewish Messiah Uh, is Jewish in anything other than. History, long ago and far away, right? But but here's the thing: it, it helps us. It it helps us to look up what Paul means by Gentiles when he says the fullness of the Gentiles. That word there in Greek is ethnos, and its Hebrew cognate, if you look it up, is goyim, goyim, and it can mean a lot of things. When you say goyim, it can be a It can be a bad thing. It can be a good thing. And it can be a neutral thing. I say, don't get upset because somebody calls you a Gentile. Know the context. Uh, It can mean a non-Jew. Even Christians. It can mean a non-Jew with no negative connotation whatsoever. But it can also have a negative connotation. It can mean a pagan, an idol worshiper. But it can also be pretty neutral. It can mean a, a descriptor of someone from another nation so the times of these nations it has to be fulfilled before israel gets soft (laughs) he says the hardening of israel what's the opposite until it gets soft until their hearts get soft Um, so let's let's go back to Betar here. And, and I'm going to look at the Midrash here because, again, it allows us into the Jewish mindset that's associated with the times of the Gentiles. And their explanation of the times of the Gentiles is derived partly from our working verse in Song of Songs 217, where it says, upon the mountains of Betar, which is where the, the King Messiah will turn and return. And they write, here's what they say. I'll just let it speak for itself. Just like Yeshua says, when you see this happen, lift up your heads. Your redemption is close. Well, here's how it's phrased from the Jewish expectation. It says the redemption will come only when the idolatrous kingdoms will have taken their portion. And the portion there is batar. A reward. See how much wordplay occurs in the Hebrew that, that we can miss? So what is batar? It's not just a place. It also means a portion. So the redemption will come only when the idolatrous kingdoms will have taken a portion, a batar of reward. It will come when the Roman kingdom will have taken its portion of grandeur. The Holy One, blessed is he, said, even if I have no grievance against the Romans, except for what they did in the city of Betar, my judgment will be extended against them. So what exactly is it getting at here? It's getting at the idea that each of these beast kingdoms had to be rewarded. Why do they need to be rewarded? It's a judgment principle that's associated again with uh, Adonai being the, the judge of the universe. Elohim, another interpretation of Elohim, which is usually interpreted God. It also means judge. He is the judge and he will judge and he will extend judgment. Remember, the time of Sukkot is when those judgments start being executed. The judgments, the decrees were put out at Yom Kippur. You've got 10 days if you're lukewarm, if you're intermediate to repent. The gates close at the conclusion of Yom Kippur. There's this kind of silence. And then... At the first day of Sukkot, those judgments are handed off to the the angels for execution, and this would be when the grapes of wrath begin. Uh, so he's saying that there will be reward at Sukkot for the elect. That's truly when you will receive your reward if you have been blessed in this lifetime with wealth, or with peace, or with obedient children. <laughs> Uh, That's a rare treat nowadays. But whatever rewards you have received in this life, if you were a believer, that's just gravy. That's all that is. That's just gravy. Uh, But the understanding is the reward for living in Yeshua's righteousness is all being kept in trust for you. There's a trust fund. <laughs> that that is being managed in the heavenlies. And so when you enter in, you know, Yeshua tells all these parables about enter in, good and faithful servant, into the joy of the Lord. And there's all these rewards and, and wonderful things. And that's sometimes hard to, to reconcile when we've just been taught grace, grace, grace. And we didn't really understand the nature of grace or what it was for. But the understanding is that um, these are not, your salvation is freedom from death. But beyond your salvation is a whole life of living in the Father's house, a time when you can lay up rewards in heaven. It says, we're neither moth nor doth, dust, dust, dust." corrupt. <laughs> you try saying it. We're neither moth nor dust, dust, doth, Corrupt. Don't use King James, is my advice. Um, So, when you enter into the glory of the Lord and his kingdom, that's when you will truly see the rewards of the things you've done. That's when you, I mean, if you had some riches in this life, there'll be nothing compared to that. If you've had no riches in this life, well, get ready, you're going to be rich. Right? And that's what he says to the assemblies. You know, you're you're poor, but you're rich. You're you're already rich in the heavenly places. So the, the principle is this, when we talk about the times of the Gentiles, even though wicked people do wicked things in their lifetimes, they will do some good. Even a wicked person will do some good. Now, the good might be tainted, the good might be out of motivation for self because there is an intrinsic good feeling that goes along with doing good things for people. It's just built into to being a human being. It feels good to help somebody out. But what's the motivation behind it? For me to feel good or to be an extension of the father's hand for his glory? So maybe they did good, even if it was tainted in some way with being self-serving, being tied together with, you know, bad things, twisted into the good things. Like, I'll give you this money if you'll do this and this and this. Um, It's not a pure gift, in other words. But he says, okay, you did some good. I'm a just king. I'm going to reward every good thing you ever did. But I'm going to reward you before you come before me at the judgment seat. And therefore, the wicked receive the reward in this world. And then when they stand before the throne, legally, there's no reward to be given. There, there is no eternal reward. They've already been paid off. They're paid in full. Whereas when the elect, when the righteous come before the throne, now it's time for the reward. Now it's time for an eternal reward. A reward he gives us in this life has a termination date. It's, we might in one sense say it's it's no better than the reward a righteous person, I mean, a, a wicked person receives because it has a shelf life. But if you have laid up treasures in heaven, if you have been obedient, if you have loved Yeshua and you've tried to obey his commandments, then you come before the throne and there at the judgment seat is eternity and all those rewards that will never wear out. And so they say, with the kingdoms, the same principle applies. It's just applying on a greater scale. With each of these beast kingdoms, they did some good things. And therefore, in this sense of nationhood or kingdomhood, I will allow these times of the Gentile kingdoms to be rewarded. The glory of Babylon is its own reward. The luxury of Persia is its own reward. The philosophies of Greece, they are their own reward. The might and the organizations of Rome, they are their own reward. And so now we are in the time of Rome among the nations, of the systems of Rome among the nations. Those systems that we have come to rely upon, the medical system, the economic system, the political system, the governmental systems, the military systems, you name every system or organization, that we benefit from, those things have a shelf life and within them is their own reward because ultimately they are tainted. They will become ways of controlling masses of people to fulfill that original desire of the King of Babylon, who said, I will lift my throne above the throne of God. So he says, until the iron and the toes are completed, of these kingdoms. See, I have to reward them, he says. So I'm going to reward them. And once they have reached the end of that time, they have reached the end of the reward for anything they could possibly have done. Their time is cut off. And now, once again, Israel will be restored to her land. Israel will once again be self-governed in the sense that Yeshua, the lion of the tribe of Judah, will rule and reign from Jerusalem on behalf of the Most High. And no longer will the nations govern the covenant people or the covenant land. Now the nations will be ruled by Yeshua and those whom he appoints. He says, as the Father has given me authority and a throne, then I will give you authority to reign and to rule with me. And this will bring about the end of the times of the Gentiles. It's a reversal of Betar. So I hope that simplifies it for you. That's about as simple as I could make it. Um, there, there's, like I said, there's lots of little trails to chase with the beast kingdoms. And we'll do more of that next week. I think next week, you know, take this a step farther. We'll We'll get into Rome and the daughters of Rome. We'll we'll take a specific look, because remember, the kingdom of Rome had to be destroyed before that second part of Yeshua's prophecy could be fulfilled. So we'll be getting into that interim period between the destruction of Betar that both John and Yeshua prophesied of. It's been a long 2,000 years, but then once those systems of Rome have kind of Like I said, infected and infested the nations of the world to give them systems of control over the earth. It's through those daughters of Rome that the final destruction will come. And because we know we are in the feet right now, we know that we are in an era of destruction when Messiah could turn, when Messiah could return upon the mountain of Betar and take vengeance for his people and return governance to his people. But, but before we got into that, I wanted to make sure that you did understand that there was a historical context for the fullness or the times of the Gentiles. And if if you get that straight in your head, then I think as you get farther into Revelation, then when we get into some more technical things like why does the beast come out of the sea, you're going to have more context in terms of knowing your times. You know, that, that was one of the characteristics. Was it the tribe of Issachar? Is like One of their gifts was knowing their times in which they lived and knowing what to do. And that's definitely what we want. We want to know our times so that we know what to do. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. On this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.